Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 747 on Halloween. And just to make it even scarier, Rich is back. I'm Jim McDowell hosting. Rich is back to host with me back from British Columbia. Correct, Rich? Good flight? Good time? Yeah, very, very wet in Vancouver, which as I was just saying a minute ago is I think pretty normal. So pretty much home from home. Uh, in terms of the British weather at the moment. So, yes, but it was a very busy, tiring, but uh, productive trip. So but it's always nice to get home. Yeah, home is where the heart is, man. I, Absolutely. When I'm gone for work. I love coming back home. Can't wait to get back home sometimes. So I feel you. I understand it. So, folks, if you like the show and you have the means, if you could donate to the show, that would be great. You can go to our webpage, www.motopodcast.com. There's links to PayPal and Patreon, whichever one you choose. And you can do things for as little as like $2 US per month. Really helps us out with server space, things like that. But we understand. We get it. Times are tough. It's hard for everybody. But if you can't, if you could just go to wherever you get your podcast from, if you could leave us a review, be great. That'd put us back in the algorithm and help us get other people there. And we would greatly appreciate that as well. For all of you who have written reviews, we appreciate that very much as well. With that, Rich, I think we'll just cut straight to the racing. I agree. Yes. Oh, well, you know what? Actually, let's back up. We've not heard what you've had to say from the island. Everybody heard what I had to say about the island. So give us your thoughts quickly on the island. Well, first of all, Jim, uh, congratulations on the solo show, because that's not easy to do and very nice and brief compared to our usual left and right turns. <laughs> but uh, no, well done for that. And thank you for, for covering that, because uh, just with the time difference and stuff, it was just kind of impossible to make that work. So my thoughts, well, uh, I mean, I did watch the races, although I've since traveled back to the UK and gone through some jet lag and stuff. So my sort of abiding memory is really weather and tires. I mean, that seemed to be the thing, didn't it? The Obviously, as you told everybody, and as everybody knows very well, they switch because of the weather. They switched the MotoGP main race to the Saturday, which was an interesting change, and that really was one for the ages, wasn't it? Because with Martin trying to make that soft rear, was it that he went out yes. uh, for the race on, trying to make it last, and just kind of not holding on to the end. I mean, that was a really, really, very, very exciting. I can't remember too much about the Moto2 race, so I'm guessing that one might have been a little bit of a humdrum affair. Yeah, that was uh, all about really the siding lap because everybody and their brother crashed. Acosta yes. had crashed there in the wind and the rain or whatever. They had talked to Darren Bender on the grid and he said it's all about trying to get temperature in your tires. And if you can't get it. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, well, then he went. I guess uh, that race is really about Acosta's recovery. Having yeah. started on the on the back of the grid, it's about him racing up to ninth. Um, I, granted, there was a ton of people who fell off in front of him, but I do think the kids smart enough to understand that this is don't there was a uh, let's keep it on the island so to speak but i also think aki was right there like look you don't have to bring this home people are going to go crazy right inside yourself and get as many points as you can and we'll live to fight another day and yeah. he did so that was really the story of moto too 
Yeah, and Moto3, likewise, a couple of people that fell off on the sighting lap. I mean, bizarre season and certainly bizarre second half of the season for Danny Holgado because he went down and kind of uh, cut his head quite badly, didn't he? And mm-hmm. was that, that yeah. was Holgado. I think that needed a couple of three stitches, didn't it, at the end of the race? So, I mean, fair play to the lad for <laughs> jumping back on the bike and going out and putting in a pretty solid performance. But as we're going to talk about in a minute, yeah, he's sort of having a really sort of tough time of it at the moment, isn't he? So... Yeah, that was kind of uh, not too much more to add to uh, your own good work, really, Jim, in terms of your summation of it all uh, earlier in the week when it came out. Yeah, moving on to Thailand. I mean, superb couple of races there. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what you've got to say about those. All right, well, we're going to uh, start out with Moto3. We'll look at the qualifying quickly. Uh, in the first session, kind of the big hitters that were there was uh, Munoz, Kelso, Nepa, and Adrian Fernandez. All four of those guys did go through to get to the Q2 session. In Q2, Hanchu uh, was uh, nerfed into the pits by Marrera. There was definitely some hard racing there by that guy. Uh, with five minutes uh, left to go, Masia was 12th. Helgardo was 9th. Sasaki was 2nd. And uh, David Alonso was 10th. You just don't think that those players are going to be in those positions at that time. Anchu was on top with three minutes to go in the session, I should say. I was going to say the race. Uh, but when we got done with qualifying, Anchu would stay on pole. He would be on the front row in that pole position on on Sunday. Marrera was second. Sasaki, Yamanaka, Vire, Forosato uh, rounded out your top two rows. The question was always going to be, given the nature of the long two long straightaways that exist on this track, could Anchu keep it going and have a win on this track. He was very fast through the, uh, what should we say, the last four or five turns, the sweeping sections of the track that were there. But we uh, wouldn't know the answer to any of that until we got into the Moto3 race itself. The start of the race, Anshu was kind of had a whole shot with Sasaki right there with Morera right behind him. They made it through the first turn. They make it through the kink, if you will, that's there, that's turn two. As you head down to the 180-degree turn three, which provides a midriff of different lines. People go to the inside. People were on the outside. And it was just absolute craziness at turn three. Vire, I think, was like fifth or sixth. And he went to the front in that turn. Well, after turn three, it came out. Sasaki wound up being in the front. Masia was there. Again, these are guys that were starting. You know, Masia was seventh. Vire was fifth. It was those guys made such a massive move in that first turn. It was impressive to see that kind of riding. And I think it was even more impressive that everybody did it cleanly without really bumping into anybody. And they were giving each other the room and the respect that they deserve. And it was just like, okay, that was like a wake-up call. We need to be paying some serious attention because this race is probably going to be wild. And that was the kickoff. That was the fuse that lit the firework that became what is a mental Moto3 race. I mean... We're used to, I think, Rich, I think you and I are used to races where you can't take notes. You're watching the screen. You get to watch it two or three times. And we talk about how these are great races and they're really fun to do and talk about. And this one is even more mental than the ones that we usually have. This one had yeah. a flare up special. I don't know if it's one of these ones you show your friends like, oh, this is why I watch Moto3. But it's still, it was pretty mental the whole way through. It got even crazier as we got into the second lap of the race. And that was because Sasaki was down. The championship leader, or you know, guy fighting for the championships, I should say, was down. And it looked like he was going to make up a lot of points. He was running in the front, but he was well ahead of Masia, who seemed as though he was struggling a little bit, at least in the earlier part of the race. But he went down as a result of Munoz's bike having a problem. 
So essentially, Munoz was coming through, I believe, uh, the turn. Is it the turn five, six part of the track, I believe? It's somewhere in that back section. It was after four, which is the high-speed turn that is basically down one gear, flick it in, and hold it wide open. That's got to be cool to do on a Moto3 bike. I would love yeah. to do that or give it a try at least once, but not without it. Now with 30 other vultures there trying to run me off the track. <laughs> but anyway, Sasaki was now. Now, I looked at it initially and i saw because what had happened uh they saw it they showed it from like sasaki's bike uh he was unsighted or tolo was directly behind munoz at the time he was able to or tolo that is was able to get around the slowing bike and in that brief second of sasaki being unsighted and this being a bike on the racing line going incredibly slow to which i instantly thought he caught a false neutral which caused the bike to not drive forward which then could cause sasaki to plow into him causing both riders to go down it was sometime later in the race when it kind of calmed down for that little bit. <laughs> that Moto's three races seemed to have that the calm before the end. You know, that, that five, six laps before everybody decides to just be cool and ride their race. Uh, Simon Crafar said, hey, it was a gearbox issue. They're not looking at electronics. They're looking at the gearbox. So I was pretty close on that one. Uh, maybe not an alt false neutral, perhaps maybe a broken cog gear uh, in those transmissions and whatnot that maybe have gotten weak over time that caused that issue but that was a big moment for that part of the race because now sasaki's down no sooner had that happened uh masia went to the front with alonzo for asado making a great race of it because he's the teenage japanese sensation holgardo was charging up the pack at this point he kind of got the bit between his teeth he had went backwards but nope he was going forward this front battle of meyer masia alonzo Anchu, who had now joined the gang and Forasado with Marrera and Ortola, that is a great group of riding going on there. They were literally in any order at any given time. You don't pass at four because it's a high-speed corner. No, they pass there. You don't pass at five because it's a tight turn. You pass there. You can't pass through eight. No, you can't pass through the sweepers at 12 going into at 11, going through 12. Nope, they did. It didn't matter. These kids were every which way. And I think half the fun was watching them go into turn three, too. They passed at one. They if there was a corner and anybody let off or anybody gave the smallest amount that you could possibly give up, these kids were all over each other to get there and get it all done. Anchu had some serious attachments because he went through and passed a bunch of people at four, which shows the a level of intelligence that all these kids have and they know and they see what's going on. When Anchu did that, then they all started to pass at four because they realized it could be done. You know, what's the old saying? Uh, you you plan, God laughs. Well, everybody had a plan on what they wanted to do. And as soon as Anchu started blowing past people at four, they were like, whoa, wait a minute. We got to change this up a little bit. Otherwise, we're going to get shuffled to the back of this pack. Uh, Helgardo got his way to 10th and he looked like he kind of stalled out. I didn't know if he had used up his tire. Did you think he'd used up his tire by that point, Rich? Well, it looked, for all intents and purposes, like he was going to be in the podium battle, didn't it? And he just kind of stalled. So... There was no other obvious reason for it, unless he was nursing some kind of technical problem with the bike. But that's not really very usual, despite what we were just saying about what happens to Munoz. So I'm guessing, Jim, yeah, that it must just have been a bit of a tire issue and just couldn't sort of push on any further forward from where he got to at that stage. Yep. We had six laps to go and the front five had finally to start to develop a gap. For the whole way through the race, it had been literally a pack of about 12 riders that were battling for the leader had a chance at any of the podium positions. Vire and Forasado had contact. It came out, Forasado on the inside. Vire just gives him the elbow on the straightaway like, whoa, hey, buddy, I'm over here and you can't push me off the track. And when that had happened, it became very argy-bargy again. 
because we're talking about having about five laps to go in the race. And it was it was elbows out for everybody everywhere on it. Alonzo had made his way to the front, followed by Masia. Vire was was Vire was vying for the podium. Say that five times fast. No, she does. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, alliterations are not my thing, but hey, that one just came out. Anchu started to come up, and he was running, I think, fourth at this point, followed by Forasada. So again, now this front five is sort of going to decide who's going to be on the podium and who's not. They literally had about three tenths to the other guys and was gaining about a tenth a lap on everybody else. So it was looked like it was going to be settled sort of that way. We got down to like two laps to go. Masia is out front. Alonzo is there in second. They're starting to go argy-bargy with each other. They're getting elbows out. People are getting real close to track limits. Some people are getting pushed off because of it. And yet they were just still head down running for it. On the last lap, Vire would lead to start. Alonzo was second. Masia had gotten shuffled back to third. Forsado was then there. Anchu had fallen off the pace. I think he got knocked out or ran wide and lost a lot of time that he wasn't able to get back. So Vire and Alonzo, they go by Masia like he'd thrown out the anchor. Vire had a huge moment that took him out of the seat. And he, well, that was at five. And he, and this sort of like broke the group up. That one moment of indecision caused everybody who was behind Vire to roll off the throttle and back on. But it gave Alonzo the ability to come forward because he sort of was on the right place at the right time. He was actually trying to set up Vire for a pass. So it played into Alonzo's hands. As it ran down, everybody, you got to think the last corner, there's going to be some carnage that's going to happen. However, Alonzo, having been through this before, I think, namely like the uh, Osterreich ring uh, in Austria, or Red Bull ring, I guess, because I'm, I'm old school. With- I was going to say, blimey, that's, that's going to yeah, get that, some memories. That shows there. you how long, ago I, how long ago I was watching Formula One racing. But Alonzo leads going into the final turn. Brilliant move to park himself on the racing line at the center of the apex so that anybody who was trying to undercut a la Forasado, Vire, Masia, who really got caught up in, in Alonzo's uh, bid because Masia was out wide waiting for everybody to go wide as they exited and he come on to cut back to the apex. He couldn't because Alonzo was stuck there. <laughs> Brilliant move by Alonzo. I mean, the kids got some smarts. Uh, you know, they said earlier, I think both Matt Bird said how he must have been watching the Asia Talent Cup race because that's how the last lap was decided for their race was the same thing. So you've got to pay attention to all the racing that happens because you may learn something that you didn't learn or didn't know or didn't think about doing until you see somebody else doing it. But that led up to a drag race to the line that was won by Alonzo. Furasato would finish second. Vire would get that long-awaited podium. Masi was relegated to fourth because, again, he had no momentum because he got stuck behind Alonzo and had to go complete full throttle shutoff. If you watch him, he just, boom, the whole thing gets closed. Anchu then finished fifth. Holgardo had kind of figured it back out again, had kind of rode to the front of the second pack, if you will, and he wound up being fifth. Uh, Bertelli then seventh. Rossi was eighth. Yamanaka ninth. And Toba tenth. Rich, a fantastic mental Moto3 race. Um, your thoughts? Well, Jim, I... Pretty much, like you said, pointless trying to make notes. It was a crazy, crazy race. But what was so astonishing to me more than anything else was just, A, the sheer amount of overtaking that was going on. And they, bear in mind, these are Moto3 kids and these are hard moves. And the astonishing control, you know, there weren't many people that went down. 
really, when you think about it. There were a few crashes during the race, of course, but in terms of that lead sort of pack of, I know the, the pack sort of split up at a certain stage mid-race, but even so, in that top kind of 15 or so riders, I don't think, apart from the incident that took Sasaki out, obviously it delayed Holgado quite badly as well, because he was caught up in that when Munoz had that, whatever it was, gearbox problem. So really just amazing the intensity of the racing and the fact that everybody stayed the right way up. That was what was kind of like the big thing for me. And quite a how via saved that, what would you, well, almost high side on the last lap was just the stop. I mean, whether that's luck or judgment or, you know, a bit of both, who knows. But I mean, he stayed on, but bear in mind that was with what, about a third of the last lap to go and he was miles back. So for him to have finished third was, you know, I had to watch it several times to figure out how that had happened. And as you said, it was really Alonso parking it going into that final turn that kind of messed Massey up and just allowed that drag race to happen. Yeah, it was just it had everything that race, didn't it, really? And a brilliant, brilliant nail-biting finish as well. You couldn't have asked for more from that race. I mean, what a way to kick off the day. Yeah. Again, it was it was passing everywhere. It was clean passing, hard racing, which I think we all love. I, mean, I When I was doing it, club, I loved a good hard race. I don't care if it was for eighth. If you were having a ding dong back and forth kind of a thing and it was clean and then you rubbed a little and that guy rubbed you a little back, it was I was one of the greatest races you had. Yeah. And you live for it. These guys had to have been enjoying it. I mean, the, the grins that came out of those guys' helmets and Park for May was quite amazing. You had the high sides, the almost high sides. You had you didn't have track limits. Now, that was amazing unto itself, you know, given yeah. the, all, all the time that these guys spent there. Now, race control, I think, did a really good job. A lot of guys got pushed out. They got pushed out by other guys. So, hey, that's not a track limits problem. That's not you not continuing your arc. You have nowhere to go because this guy is pushing you off. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just everything you wanted in a, in a Moto3 race. And you're just like, it left my mouth watering for what was going to happen in Moto2 because you thought, good grief, man, these this is going to be another one of these great Moto2 races or something. But it's just everything that you wanted in a race. It was just, a, it was a belter. I think you're right, Jim, as well, to point out, given how much we, certainly I, have grumbled about race direction over the last couple of seasons or so, probably a bit longer, there does seem to have been a, a sea change up in the control box, it seems to me, because as you said, there were several occasions, or two at least that I can think of in that Moto3 race, where people clearly got nerfed a bit wide just because it was pack action and they did go into the track limits area, even though they were on a warning already. And nothing was done about it. So that is good to see. The only other thing I wanted to say really was very, very, very unlucky for Sasaki. I mean, he was visibly upset by what had happened. I mean, it's just one of those things. I mean, what goes around comes around, I suppose. Things tend to even out over time. But he just got the uh, the wrong end of the stick on that one, for sure, because he had absolutely nowhere to go. And that closing speed, that just goes to show that even though they're Moto3 bikes, they're still going pretty damn quick. And when a bike slows unexpectedly like that, there's just virtually no time to react although interestingly the guy Sasaki was unsighted because was it Ortola in front of him Ola. and he did just react quick enough to jump out of the way but Sasaki for whatever reason just didn't have the you know the time to react in the same way so that was very very unlucky mentioned also to Furusato first podium in Moto3 he's over the last few races that kid's been showing some form and it's interesting how this builds with time I would also actually like to point out although he didn't finish in the points, I think he might have been 16th, but just from a British perspective, without wishing to be too uh, biased about it. But Josh Watley is now also starting to show a bit more form than he's shown up until now. And we know the Vision Track bikes are not bang up to date bikes, and 
you know, we know Scott Ogden, who's one of the taller riders, has some issues with the fact that they're perhaps not bang up to date and maybe don't have quite the power that some of the other bikes do. But Josh Watley, who has kind of struggled probably by his own mission, I would expect. But in the, again, in the last few rounds, he started to appear much closer up. You know, I think he might have even got through Q2 in one of the recent sessions. I might be wrong, but he was certainly troubling getting into uh, the Q2 session. So nice to see progress, but that's by far and away Furosato's best race. Um, so again, int- although we've only got, what, three races of the season left to go now, which is a bit frustrating when you start to hit a bit of form, but it's going to be interesting to see how a couple of these uh, youngsters, if they can keep that going, because with a podium under his belt, it might just be that he runs rampant for the last two or three rounds now. And yeah. final thing on Moto3, Jim, did you watch the post-race interviews in the pen? Yeah, but I didn't really catch much of it. I Breakfast was calling at that point. <laughs> so, I don't, well, that's perfectly understandable. Colin Vire, who I've never seen uh, on screen before, so never heard him speak. I was expecting this very thick Dutch accent, you know, which is quite a recognisable accent for anybody that spent any time around uh, Dutch people, as I certainly have. He sounds like he's from the East End of London. I'm going to have to ask him about it when I see it. You know, hopefully I'll get to see him in Qatar because he's got an extraordinarily odd accent for a kid from, from the Netherlands. So I'm kind of wondering where he's grown up or where he spent a lot of time. Well, I don't know if anybody uh, in Motorpod land listenership knows your answer to that question. So if you do, let me know. But yeah, I was just kind of slightly amused by the fact that I was expecting this you know, Dutch accent to emerge and uh, yeah, sounded like a, somebody on, on the cast of EastEnders. Wow. I didn't pay attention to that part of it. Like I said, it, it was playing and I was preparing breakfast so i probably should have paid more attention but uh let's look at the championship standings yeah masia having come home in that uh fourth place allows him to be on 230 points that puts him 17 ahead of sasaki sasaki caught a break let's be honest uh you know you give it and you take it away right you had a whole bunch of points that you gave away but then you know you get to take a few back because everybody else kind of helped you big big thank you to vire for getting on the podium yes i mean i I, you know i hate to think of next year but for asado vire and holgardo and munoz and stuff those guys are gonna in alonzo is gonna be wicked for a whole season you know these kids are just these kids are rickies and they're figuring this out. I think this is not for Zotto's full second year. He had a few races, I think, wild cards at the end of 2022, and he's a full time 2023 ride, I believe. So, I something like that. I know he had a couple, they had a start maybe in Japan or something like that. But Alonzo has now crept into uh, third on 205. I mean, that puts him 25 down on Masia. That's not to say that he can't win this title either, because anything can happen as we have seen. From what he went on today, Holgardo yeah. is now level on points with, or I guess I should say, Alonso has now gone to level on points with Holgardo, and they're both 25 points behind. It's not out of it. Anchi's on 39, and given the way this craziness is happening, it's looking a bit more of a problem because Anchi's got to contend with Qatar and the big long straights that are there. And if he's not able to really do much here, you don't think that he can really do much at Qatar. So I think his championship bid is pretty much over. He's got a Moto2 ride. I think it's going to be fine. Yeah. I think he might do better on a Moto2 bike just from his physical size when he gets on it. Uh, Anchu fifth, uh, Ortola is sixth, uh, Moreira, then Rueda, Vire, uh, thanks to that podium finish. And Munoz is your top 10 in the Moto3 championship. It occurs to me, Jim, that the curveball that might come, given how tight this championship is, I mean, as you say, Omchu is 39 back, which is starting to look like a bit of a bridge too far. But although we did say this last year and it didn't transpire, but it's even later this year, uh, Valencia, 
if that is a nasty kind of cold wet affair which mm-hmm. is every chance it could be that is going to be very tense that moto three race because if you fall off you're done basically aren't you with the points being this tight because as you say four people within a win on points so yeah if, if valencia is sketchy which i wouldn't be surprised that's going to be a bit of a nail biter i think Unless something really odd happens between now and then, but we've only got Malaysia and Qatar to go, so yeah. it's not an awful lot of time for, for crazy things to happen now, other than the usual Moto three race craziness. Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think Malaysia is going to be really interesting with these guys. Just the two long straights, tight turns. These guys are going to in a, in a wider track than most of the other tracks we go to. It's a very wide track now, and you kind of frequently see them going four or five into some of the turns there. So it's going to be one of those races, probably. I mean, every single Moto3 race is just kind of crazy in one way or another, and that you very, very rarely get a dull Moto3 race. And, and t- uh, this particular track, and it strikes me that Malaysia is very similar in the sense that you've got a couple of very long straights. So you can't, br- unless something happens to break the pack like a crash, you know, slipstream is everything. And so you tend to get pretty big close packs racing all race long so that is great yeah whereas Qatar is a bit different because you've obviously got the main front straight but then it's all kind of uh, third and fourth gear stuff uh, until the, they get back around to that main straight again so there is an opportunity there for people to break I suppose but no Malaysia will be good but again you never know what the weather's going to do there true it could bucket down <laughs> you never know yeah well let's move to the Moto2 race uh quickly at qualifying in the first one Gonzalez Agura Arbolino, Slatch, Lowe's, Guevara, they're all in that first session. So that was pretty good hitters in that first session. But Slatch, Arbolino, Lowe's, and Guevara go through. Agura is out. So he does not make it through to the second qualifying session and a chance to run for pole or be any higher. I think he has to start 13th on the grid for something close to that, maybe 15th. But we got into that second qualifying session. Slatch going down at turn five. Six minutes to go. And Acosta hasn't set a lap time yet because he's had a lap that would have been on pole canceled by a yellow flag uh, due to a crash by Kinnett. Uh So you're kind of waiting like, OK, this kid's had pace all. I mean, he was fastest in practice. He's, you're waiting for him to go to the pole. And what happens, Aldegar just digs deep and just puts a lap down that like, nope, can't touch that, pal. It was followed by Acosta, then Arenas, his teammate, Kinnett, uh Chantra and uh, Ramirez. Aldegar had an absolutely incredible third sector to take that pole position. The Bosca Cora obviously has always been known for its cornering speed and its prowess to hug a line and hold it and go fast doing it. And that section of the track, that third sector is all about stringing the corners together. And Outiger did an absolutely great job to do it and a well-deserved pole. But it was always like, well, what's going to happen in the race? Because Acosta's had pace all weekend long, but you never, you don't pay points for qualifying. You only pay points when you get there on Sunday. We start the Moto2 race on Sunday. It's 22 laps, but we have to realize that Acosta has a chance to wrap up the title. The maths are simple. Acosta finishes first. Arbolino has finishes 10th. Acosta's champion. If Acosta finishes second and Arbolino somehow finishes 15th, it's Acosta's championship. So we're at the first time for, you know, Moto3 is going to Valencia. MotoGP is going to Valencia, okay? So this is this is the first time we have a game point at all, and it's in the Moto2 race. So this is kind of what we got to watch as we look at the race we go into. Outiger takes off from pole. Acosta goes with him. Ramirez is right there. Chantra, Lopez, and Arbolino all right there on the way. Arbolino now falls back to like ninth. Kinnett got a double long lap penalty because he jumped the start. 
Ooh, fractionally moving just before the light. It was very, very close. I felt sorry for him, but, you know. He did jump it. Yeah, no, he yes. jumped. He jumped. He, he jumped. Joe Roberts had a crash. This is all, like, on the first on the first lap. We determined all of this craziness here. Then we got uh, down to the lap eight, uh, 18 to go. Dixon is coming in to turn three. He goes way late on the brakes, and he clots Celestino Vietti as he goes into that turn. Big high side for Jake. Over the bars, lands flat on the hump on his back. Boom, Michelin Man style, leather action, slides off. And he was in some discomfort when he crawled to his knees. I think his wind was knocked out of him. And, oh, I've done that before. Man, you just can't seem to get enough air back in fast enough. <laughs> You're just like, ah, what did I do? Did I puncture a lung here or whatever? I just want air and I can't get it. He might have been on all fours in the gravel thinking, oh, my God, I, what did I say about Darren Binder at Silverstone? Ooh. This sort of thing does happen. I mean, it, to be fair, Jake, uh, and I, I've got a massive amount of time and respect for Jake Dixon, as everybody knows. I think he's brilliant. But even by his own admission, and, and he did apologise to Darren Binder in the round after Silverstone, wherever it was, I forget now, but because obviously he was the red mist came down on that particular day and he said some things that, on reflection, he regretted. And part of the reason why he should have regretted it, as he did, was because sometimes it happens to you. I mean, for all I know, he might have had a brake problem, you know, front brake issue, because... That was a weird crash, actually, because he was so far back. And he went, but he just maybe just completely misjudged it. Or because you only need to break what I don't know, a foot later Half than a meter, and that's all it takes. So, yeah, one of those. But uh, yeah, sometimes you have to chew your words a little bit, don't you? And we all do from time to time. Oh yeah, sometimes you do. Uh, just remember, folks, that was Brit on Brit. Okay, so it was not the American dodging on the Brit. It's true. As I say, Jake himself was very humbled by the, what's the word? Uh, That's probably not the right word, but well, he felt the need that he had to apologise to Darren Binder and the team, uh, you know, following his outburst at Silverstone. And and he was right to do what he did. Agreed. Saw that. Uh, Let's see. Outiger, Acosta, Chancho, Ramirez, Lopez, and Arbolino, who had now worked his way into that top six. We got uh, Garcia going down with 15 laps to go. Arbolino goes by Lopez at turn three. So now Arbolino is now fifth. Well, Kiss Saint Championship lockup goodbye at this point. I mean, it was kind of a little outrageous to think that Arbolino was going to finish 10th or 15th in this race. Arbolino was just too good and has been too good all year long. He did have that bit of a slump there. And, you know, like he didn't win. I didn't say it, but he, he hadn't won a race until he won at Phillip Island in the wet since I think France was his last win. Which goes to show you like where Acosta ripped off like I think seven wins in that time frame. So it's pretty impressive by both those guys to be where they are. Uh, the race continued on. You had Outiger, Acosta, Chancho, Ramirez, and then Arbolino and Lopez. That's how, how it stacked up after that pass. Outiger is out front and really nobody is going to touch him. I held out hope until we got to like 10 to go that you know Acosta was going to be able to run him down or whatever, but he just kept putting a 10th on Acosta. He just, anytime Acosta ran faster, he just upped the pace just that little bit. Arbolino did continue his charge forward. He did get by Ramirez, and that is about where he would stall out in all that. Unfortunately, what we didn't get to see was the charge that Ayagura made through the pack. Mm. He came from his lowly starting spot of 15th, maybe, on the grid, to be running up by Ramirez and essentially Ayagura would get Ramirez uh, with two laps to go and it would allow him to finish in fifth which was an outstanding ride by Ayagura that we didn't get to watch which really upset me but Outiger wins Acosta second Chantra home race podium 
the crowd loved it. They yep. loved every bit of him being there. Uh, Arbelino was at fourth. Iager, Ramirez, Arenas, Lopez, Guevara, and the final top 10 finisher was Manuel Gonzalez. It was a dry Moto 3 race. Or Moto 3. It was a dry Moto 2 race. I apologize. But you had a little bit of action with Dixon there. You had Joe Roberts having a crash as well. And then you did ha- get the chance to watch uh Arbolino sort of come forward a little bit take a few spots but really there's nothing more to say I think about Moto 3 Rich Moto 2 yeah Moto 2 <laughs> you can say Paul you don't want to acknowledge it yeah I mean to be fair we've had some very exciting Moto 2 races this year but this is not one that's going to be troubling the replay part of the Dawn of Streaming service I would imagine over the coming few years I watched it on catch-up because, you know, I had quite a long line on Sunday morning because the object lag was hitting me a little bit. So I watched it on catch-up, and I have to admit that by half-distance, my notes say I'm fast-forwarding now. <laughs> That's why I actually wrote it down because Aldinger just looked totally assured out front, and it was kind of, in a positive sense, just desserts because he kind of, I think he would have won in Australia if it had not been for the weather. Obviously, he didn't like the rain and one thing and another. So he was due this win, and it was nice to see him. This is his second win, I think, because he won in Silverstone this year, didn't he, to break his duck in Moto2. Acosta just never looked troubled in second. It was just one of those sorts of races, Jim, really, wasn't it? I mean, the, as you correctly pointed out, the well, the excitement, but also the head-scratcher from the Honda Team Asia's point of view was like, you suddenly, you know, who'd been all at sea, from what I could gather, pretty much all weekend. I mean, did you say he didn't even make it into Q2, did he? No, he never made it to Q2, never got out. We must have been further down the grid than 15th then, because uh, that would have been the top 16 in Q1, wouldn't it? Or was it top 14? I can't. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. He was I don't quite remember. A, quite a long way down and hadn't really been showing any form and didn't really feature in the first sort of half of the race. And suddenly, yeah, the speed arrived. So that's a bit of a weird one. He's obviously he's out of that team next year anyway. He's going over to Italtrans, is it? I'm trying to think where he's off to now. One of the other bigger teams anyway. So, yeah. That's really all there is to say about the Moto2 race. We hope for better things in Malaysia. Hmm. So let's take the point standings. Acosta's on 300.5 points. Arbeluno at 237.5 points. It's a 63-point lead that Acosta has. It's all but over here. I mean, there's something really bad that's going to have to fall Acosta. I see him being in the top three in Malaysia. I see him yeah. being in the top three in Qatar. And he's just going to walk his way to this title. Dixon is still in third, Canet fourth, Somcat, Chantra fifth, Fermin Adiger in sixth, Lopez, Gonzalez, Salach, and Iagur cracks the top 10 with that fifth place finish. So that is how the point standings are in Moto 2. Got it right this time. With that, I guess we're going to have to go to Moto GP and oh, see yes. what goes on there because this is the other race. That's a great race. But first, we must discuss a little bit of what happened in practice. Now, Jorge Martin's bike lost one of the wings off of it, to which as they were heading into the pits to do time attacks and qualifying, uh, you know, check qualifying setup, that kind of thing. The parts in question or pieces of the part in question flew up and hit Mark Marquez in the shoulder. And he said, well, it didn't really matter. It was before time attack. It hurt for just a minute or two. And I just thought it was debris off the track. My point has been that these wings, someone's going to get hurt. I don't want anybody to be hurt by a wing that gets knocked off in a a racing accident. But we've now seen that there is a possibility it can happen. Yeah, and it definitely was a bike part, was it? Because I only kind of caught this somewhat fleetingly. Initially, I thought perhaps he just had flicked something up from the track surface. But it it was an errant body part that came loose and flew through the air, was it? Right. Yeah, it was. So, again, you know, we had something that hit somebody. 
I don't think any of us want that to happen. I don't want it to happen. But I just think it was interesting. Well, I mean, the point, Jim, is that clearly it distressed Marquez a little bit for a minute or two, and it was on his shoulder. So if mm-hmm. one of those things hits somebody in the neck, which is obviously vulnerable on a bike, because it's one bit you can't easily protect. So you are the, the skin and the cartilage in your neck and one thing and another. You don't want a piece of bodywork, which might be carbon fibre, but it still weighs something. And when it's travelling at speed, it has you know a certain amount of mass and velocity to it. It's not really a good scenario, that. So your, I think your concern is well-founded, really. Yep. Mark Marquez is in the first qualifying session. I think we would all expect that. Miller was there, which I did not expect. DG Antonio was there. Alex Marquez was there. But Alex goes through along with his brother. Now, his brother got towed there by Miller. And this goes to a point, uh, I don't want to sound like a rant here, but there was a tremendous amount of dawdling that has been going on by MotoGP guys looking for that tow, specifically Marquez. I understand there's nothing in the rule book that says that you can't do it. I also understand that the Honda is not capable of going fast unless it's in the toe of something. And then it starts to work right for whatever reason. So my thing to you, Rich, and this is what I want to talk about more, is do you think that they would change qualifying to say like maybe a single rider qualifying attempt like Super Bowl? Just to stop that from happening? I really hope not. I mean, I, hate, I hope not too. I hate that kind of format. I hated it in Formula One. I hated it in World Superbike, but they got rid of it, thankfully, in both of those categories. I think it would be a really kind of bad step for MotoGP to take. This is just an area, actually, having just been relatively singing their praises. I think this is an area where the stewards are perhaps not being tough enough on the MotoGP riders, whether they're a little bit scared to sanction people. But you can't be handing out sanctions to the Moto3 crowd and letting the MotoGP boys get away with it. And it is getting really very silly now and it's not just mark marcos i mean they're all at it now i wonder whether uh, over the course of a single lap where front tire pressure is not going to be so much of an issue as in building front tire pressure because of heat i wonder whether tucking in behind somebody in the hole in the air particularly if you're on a slightly slower bike which would apply to the hondas for example with the amount of aero that's involved on say a ducati now if you're behind that thing and it's punching a hole in the air for you you are going to get an advantage for that and over a lap as i say probably the front tire isn't going to be a a problem for you in that regard sorry jim I, I won't edit this out i can tell it's halloween my light keeps going off so <laughs> nothing's working so my microphone is playing up my headphones don't work now my lights coming on and off so yeah halloween anyway yeah i just think race direction need to get a bit of a grip of this one and and start to have a quiet word in people's ears to say look if you keep on doing it you are going to start to suffer grid penalties or whatever it would need to be because we've seen a few cases lately in MotoGP people actually dawdling on the racing line so we don't want a rule change or some knee-jerk change which is to the detriment of everything because they wait long enough for a nasty accident to happen I'm thinking of a kind of remember when it wasn't for this reason but when Mark Marcus went plowing into the back of somebody in Moto2 a few years ago you know that enormous sort of rear ending of somebody who's dawdling along yeah we don't want to see that so i think they need to get a grip on this one i mean marcus has been doing this for a few seasons for probably for differing reasons i think probably the reason now is because there is an advantage in following another bike closely behind which is fine i mean there's nothing against following people it's all this hanging around and sort of dawdling potentially on the racing line or close to it that i think is going to result in a nasty accident before too much longer if they don't cut it out yeah that's my take i prescribed the casey stoner theory go out there throw down the fastest freaking lap you possibly can go there boys go chase it yeah i mean that's what they're there to do isn't it get it done yeah 
I don't know. I, I just fear that they're going to do something, as you said, to the detriment of what's happening. I don't want to see a Super Bowl stuck format or something like that. But you get the idea that they would think that it would be like more dramatic of TV. Like, ooh, you know, I, I no. no. What you have now is great. I love the way that it is in these two sessions. And a couple of people get to go through to the next one. And the same when then they you know put that into Moto 3 and Moto 2. And I love it. I think it's great. I think it's, you know, it takes a while for the drama to build, but it's only 15 minutes and good grief. You know, it's over in a flash. So, but I just wanted to point that out because this has been getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm just thinking, I'm sitting there watching now. I'm like, man, someone's going to give here at some point. Something has to give. So, in fairness, Jim, there are there's one or two riders who don't do this. I mean, Jorge Martin, okay, you might say, well, he's on Ducati, but he just goes out and sets laps. Vinales, he's the same. He tends to go out on his own, set fast laps. So I accept that if you're on a Honda or a Yamaha, okay, you're not going to be troubling pole out there on your own, but that's just a a factor of where they are in development terms at the moment like you i was a bit dubious about the q1 q2 format when they first did it because it was a little bit oh, let's follow formula one again and look what they're doing but i actually think it does work i mean i'm a traditionalist if it were me they just would have 60 minutes like they used to have they just go out there and do as many laps as they want and it all build up to the end so or, or 40 minutes or whatever it used to be i'm thinking of formula one perhaps in the good old days when it was worth watching which isn't anymore um <laughs> but this format does work but i don't really think they want to be changing it because it's good tv it is i do i do think it's good i do think it's really good the other TV. point about it's all lap or one at a time qualifying as well is it's it's inherently unfair because conditions change over that period of time and it will potentially advantage one person over another whereas what you want is a hey well you can go out at the same time they just need to keep out of each other's way a little bit more but I do think that that doesn't matter because the track changes in the 15 minutes that they're out there. And we all know it's the last guy sometimes that makes the fastest lap. The, the trick is to back time yourself. The point is, though, that with a one by one thing, you don't have choices oh, when you go out. I see yeah, what you That's my point. Gotcha. All right. Oh, anyway, in the uh, second qualifying session, I don't think this is any surprise. Martin just went out and blitzed everybody. Uh, yeah. He is a qualifying machine and he's now taking that qualifying speed and is turning it into sprint wins he's turning it into race wins he's becoming a very well-rounded rider uh in moto gp that's scary because he is quite the beast right now and he definitely has momentum on his side. luca marini would finish second in qualifying that came from like nowhere i did not see marini anywhere not a fast lap at all until boom right at the end and he popped himself up there too he was followed by alesh bezeki bender and benyaya benyaya at least having a decent time to be on the second row Although just barely, he just beat out the Marquez twins, then Vinales Quattraro with a pretty decent ride on the Yamaha. Zarco would start 11th, and then Augusto Fernandez would be 12th. That's how we would start the race. Or how we start the sprints, how we start the main race. But we start the sprint next, and we go to the MotoGP sprint. Martin just gets out there, puts down, goes, gone. Never had it. This is just Martin's thing. He's gone. That's just really where it is. Vignaya was back in ninth. Because uh, he got passed by Zarco at the start. You know, he fell backwards. This seems to be what Ben Yaya does. He doesn't get the start for some reason. Mm. I'm not sure why. He doesn't want to get his elbows out in a sprint race, which I noticed. I'm not sure if there's... He just thinks everybody's just going way too crazy, so he's just going to play safe, maybe. I'm not sure where he thinks he's going to be. Um, Aleish went from third to fifth. So he started to go backwards. Marini was right behind Martin. Bender was right there. In third, Benyaya was starting to get going once he sort of got used to whatever he needs to get used to. He just he just suddenly started to get going with with ten to go. Um, he started to pull in the people that were in front of him, and you know I guess the guys in front were pulling away. I should say. And so I think he decided, oh, I I need to get the points. I've got to get going here. He did. 
Bender tries it on uh, Marini, but doesn't really succeed. Uh, Benyai gets a track limits warning. Bender then goes by Marini. Um, the question was, could he catch? Could he catch at all, Jorge Martin? That was the question. Bender did have a little bit of pace, but the question was, it took him a while to get past Marini. Marini was riding a, a really good race. I was hoping Bender could make a go of it, but he tried. But he got there, but he didn't really put anything on him. So with five to go, it was Martin, it was Bender, it was Marini, Aleish, Bezeki. Marquez had gone to pass Benyaya, uh, and then Marquez got by Bezeki. And then with one to go, Aleish went wide at three as everybody sort of tried to funnel into that 180-degree turn. Marquez got by Aleish, and then Marquez got back by at turn nine. And then Marquez went by at turn 12. But it was Martin who would finish in the number one spot. Bender had nothing for Martin. I think as Martin felt threatened, he started to open up the gap on Bender. Marini would get a well-deserved podium position. Marquez would finish fourth on the Honda. Shocking. I mean, right, right. I think it goes to show that he's just got such an immense talent because I think you and I both agree. I think everyone would agree without a doubt that that bike is horrible horrible well it certainly is compared to all the bikes around him yeah <laughs> oh yeah i get it this is a sprint race and it's only 13 laps it's half the distance and i think kenny roberts said you anybody can ride a piece of shit for four laps or something like that but i mean i just the the determination that he's showing it simon crafar said this too he says despite what you think about it think about the determination and the ability that both quattro and marquez are doing they come knowing that they're going to be fighting an uphill battle every single weekend. They have a smile on their face. They treat the fans with respect, take pictures, autographs. They do all that stuff. They come in there and then they give you a show. Half the fun is trying to figure out how Marquez is going to get through qualifying. Half the fun is trying to figure out where he's actually going to finish. Half the fun is to see what Quattararo can pull out of his hat because they, he's done it before. Yeah, And that's what you're looking for. It's like, good grief, man. I, I am... 100%. He's on that Ducati next year. Marquez is going to be at the front all the time, if not winning races. And I think Stoner said something to the effect that Ducati has trouble developing their 20 their new bikes. So Benya is going to have a 2024. Martino have a 2024. Marquez is going to get a 2023 and a shit ton of notes. All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, you may not know which way Marquez went with the Ducati. We don't know. I am so looking forward to the test of Valencia the day at the Tuesday after. Because I want to just know how fast he's going. Because yeah. you know he's going to be fast. I hope they're showing that test on the uh, on the dawn of feed. I think they are. Yeah, because that'll be a heavily watched day oh. with Marquez out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's good for the sport if Marquez is back at the front. It'll be better to sport if you put Quattraro back at the front, right? Yeah. I had tweeted, I don't know, if you do you still tweet if it's X? I don't know. Anyway, I <laughs> put out there the little interview that happened with Pedro Acosta. And Acosta had it figured out. He's like, People love the celebration. They love when you win that you do something different and unique and fun. And they want the rivalry. They want to see Marquez versus Quattro. They want to see, he says, it's, he knows, he gets it. There's a show. He, he understands what Rossi understood. There's a show. There's a point about racing. There's a point about making it a show. Some episodes ago, Jim, one of us said something along the lines of, Pedro Acosta is kind of like the perfect fusion of Mark Marquez and Valentino Rossi in a way. You know, he's super, super talented, ruthless when he needs to be, but he gets the promotional side of it, both from his own point of view and for the wider championship, uh, which obviously benefits him as well. So hopefully he won't be under too much pressure next year, in the, certainly not in the early part of the season. Well, I mean, there's going to be massive expectations on him, but I think by the time we get to 24-25, he's going to be 
seriously, seriously hard to keep, you know, off the top. Well, certainly off the box, one of them. So, mm. yeah, that's a mouth-watering prospect just right there. Uh, Never mind yes, Marquez on a, a Ducati. So this leaves us with an 18-point advantage. Benyaya, 18 points ahead of Jorge Martin going into the Sunday race. At the beginning, everyone was on a medium front, hard rear, except for Alex Marquez. He went medium, medium. Nobody went for a soft at all. So we got off to the start. Martin, again, had a whole shot. Marini right there with him. Alace right there with him. Benyaya making a much better start this time to be there in front. And he sort of was way more aggressive. Uh, Benyaya picked up Bender and Alex Marquez went by Bender as well. There was some elbow out action from Benyaya. I think he realized the points are on the table. Can't let Martin get away. Got to be aggressive. Got to make a start. Need to get there because let's face this. I think that there's no pressure on Martin. I think all the pressure is on Benyaya. What has Martin got to lose? He's got a great season going. Yeah, I mean, no. I know he wants to win a world championship. I understand. I get that there's pressure there. But I've said it before. I'd rather be the guy coming from behind because what have I got to do? I got to go for it, right? I don't really have to second guess myself if I want to pass at this turn. I just pass because I have to. I need to get to the front. I need to win. I need to gain points. I need to be ahead of Pekka Benyaya. Yeah. And, you know, let's be honest, Indonesia aside, Martin hasn't really dropped the ball, has he? I, I mean, that was a curious crash that he had, as we discussed at the time. We don't need to go over it again. But I'm not a psychoanalyst, and who, who knows for sure? Only the people closest to him and the man himself knows. But Banyaya looks tight at the moment because all the pressure is on him. He's the reigning world champion. He's the works rider. People are kind of considering that it's his championship to lose now. And as you say, Jim, it's Martin's to, to go out and win if he can. And nobody's really expecting him to do it, perhaps apart from himself. And that crash aside, he'd be well in the lead at the minute so but he's building again isn't he? i mean he's he's the king of the sprint i thought that was his fifth sprint win and as we're going to talk about was you're starting to talk about now he was um pretty strong in this race as well he was you had a six rider group that was out the front bender did get by marini so he got by faster and i was hoping okay now longer race we know that the ktm's got the carbon fiber chassis it's got more edge grip later in the race bender seems to be able to maximize that miller for some reason doesn't seem to be able to maximize what the carbon fiber chassis gives bender so that's a bit odd i'm not sure why but it's something about how miller rides that doesn't jive with it but it's something that bender obviously gets and we were going to see what was going to happen. I was very curious. Like, ooh, I know later in the race, probably the edge grip is going to be Bender's. Yeah. Meanwhile, and all this, Marquez got by Benyaya. That was a little argy-bargy, but they were both losing time. And Benyaya got himself backtracked back to seventh place. Not where he wanted to be. Martin and Bender were then sneaking away from the battle there. Now, Marini was right there too. It was pretty much the front had been settled here for the biggest part of it. It was Martin, Bender... Marini and Aleish and Benyaya. Now, at some point, Aleish and Mark Marquez had a battle, and that was really pretty good. I mean, there wasn't too much happening at the front. You were waiting for Bender to close up. It wasn't happening. Maybe Bender was saving tires, trying to stay out of Martin's draft to keep the tire temperature in the front where he needed it. Was Bender keeping his powder dry? At some point, you had to think Bender was going to have to have a go and just waiting for that to go in. So we're sort of in a little law that kind of happens here in the middle of the, middle of the race. But Benyaya starts to turn this back around and you know this is the thing i don't want to rant about the tv we didn't see agura go through the pack at all in moto 2 yet they did show us this great little battle that alash and mark marquez were having oh and by the way they also showed us benyaya as he started to work his way back up and he actually got back to fourth place so 
Benyaya has kind of been up and down like a yo-yo for a little bit here. And I was like, okay, what's Benyaya done to this tire? He's got the hard on. We know that. He's got a medium front. Okay. He's got the same tires as the guys out front. If he's punishing this tire more, having to work through the front, is he going to have anything at the end? So again, there's sort of this buildup happening. It's 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 an intriguing chess match, if you will, right? Yeah. You know, somebody's like, oh, okay, take my pawn. Okay, well, rook to knight seven, blah, blah, blah. You know, wherever it is that we're going on a chessboard here. And it just was interesting to see how this was going to play out, which, I mean, that's the thing I love about the fact that we don't have radios and we only have a pit board. You have to make a decision yourself. You're there on your own. You don't have anybody telling you there's somebody 10 seconds behind you every 30 seconds when you're going around the track as you are in a Formula One car or whatever. I think it's what makes motorcycling racing unique is you are there. The team can't do anything for you except for give you a board, tell you're in a group of six and tell you what your plus minus is and how many laps you've got. Right. And yeah. half the time, I doubt you could read the whole board as you're flying <laughs> by at that time anyway. Well, Alex Marquez went down at turn 10. The front end just kind of folded under him a little weirdly. That was really late in the corner for him. So I don't know if he lost rear grip, which pushed the front because he had the medium rear on, you know, he had the medium rear as opposed to the hard rear. So was his grip going away? And if he didn't have the grip, was it starting to go sideways and that forced more pressure to the front and he turned it, tucked it in. It just seemed like that crash was a little odd to me that how he went down. On first glance, I thought he might just clip the curb a little bit too hard with his front and it just folded on him. But Simon Gray from the Dawn feed at least, which not everybody listens to, of course. I think he was suggesting that the front got unloaded a little bit just for one reason or another, perhaps because of the rear tire that he chose. So, yeah, bit of a shame, though, because we didn't get to see whether that choice was going to be a good one or not. Yep. Again, you're sort of waiting like, well, Martin went with the soft and Philip Island. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got to sort of wonder about that, you know, it's the ifs and buts, you know. Yeah. All that good stuff. Quattro and Mark Marquez are now trading places. So it's fun to see those guys going at it again. Again, we got to see them actually trade places. So that was pretty good. And they were going at it hard as well. They? Yes, I mean, they were. They were not <laughs> taking. No, no quarter given, no quarter taken. Yeah. Uh, eight to go. Bezeki finally got past his teammate Marini. Martin and Bender have now developed a 2.2 second lead ahead of Ben Yaya. Bender is then by Martin, but he kind of runs a little wide, and then Martin goes back by Bender. Ben Yaya is about a half a second off of this right now, and you're wondering what maybe Ben Yaya is going to come to the fore because now. These two started dicing, right? Martin and Bender are dicing. So now they're cutting each other up. They're not getting to drive. Here comes Ben Yaya into the section. It's like, ooh, now this is going to become a three-way battle here because it was obvious Martin could not get away. It was obvious that Bender had edge grip because now he's attacking in that, like, you know, six laps to go kind of a range. That's when I would want to start my attack, right? I, I wouldn't want to wait to the end. I would at least want to test and probe to see maybe where he's weak, where I'm good. So again, the chess match is starting to play out and here comes another player and that's going to be Ben Yaya. Now, if Ben Yaya was starting to close in, maybe that forced Bender's hand a little early. Maybe Bender wanted to be like three or four laps. I'm not sure how that one played out, but Bender was definitely deciding to get going with it. Uh, six to go, top three are all together. They're all right there. Then Bender's by at turn eight. Bender forces the issue. He gets by at eight. That was his strong section of the track. A little more edge grip than Martin had. So Bender actually goes to the front. He's beating Martin and Benyaya, Bezeki, and then Aleish. And then Quattraro has now gotten into sixth place. Martin throws it back by Bender at turn three. So Bender leads from eight, cross the line, leads a lap. They go to turn three. And man, Martin just threw it in there on him. Just drove it in deep. Now, Bender didn't really protect the line. He didn't have to, but there's so many different things that were going on in that point. So this is with two laps to go. Ben Yaya 
we're going towards turn 12 here now. We've, we've made it through the back of the track. We've gone through 11. We're starting to go into 12. And all of a sudden, Benyaya, either, I don't know if he just misjudged a two-bike draft because Bender's wanting to go back by Martin. But here comes Benyaya just like on the outside, cruising by to the front. Like they went three wide into 12. You're thinking, is he going into the pits? <laughs> I, you did, Exactly. I didn't know what Benyaya was doing. I don't know if it was just one of those things because, I mean, I can't really explain to you what it's like in the draft, but like racing at like Road America for me, if you're towed by a couple of bikes and you say, okay, I'm going to grab my brakes just a little sooner than I would normally at my brake marker. It's like you have no brakes. The the suck is so great. It's like, I know I've got them. I'm on them as hard as I can. I'm pulling them for everything they're worth. And we are not stopping. And it's a scary feeling when you're in that. So I, even the best, even the guys at this level are still misjudged how much suck they're getting from the guy, two guys in front. And I was just wild. Like, phew, there goes Benyaya. I'm like, holy crap, this is going to be an amazing last lap. <laughs> it was a great try. I cannot put anything past Benyaya. He was trying. Martin and Bender, what happens is Martin defends the rest of the way because Martin gets himself back in front there, that dive at turn 12. You're kind of waiting for Bender to do the same thing on the very last lap that Martin had done on the previous lap. It doesn't happen. Martin wins the race. Bender finishes second. And then you had Benyaya third. Only to find out the dreaded track limits. Bender ran off. I don't know which turn it was. I think it's turn four. Yeah. I saw him do it. You could tell he'd gone over the green. Yeah. And it's the last lap. So. Yep. Rules are rules. That's a rule I don't like. I understand why it's there. I'm not going to argue with it. Rules are rules. Bender fell afoul of it and was demoted one place. So the podium, Martin, Benyaya, Bender, Bezecchi, Quattraro fifth, Marquez in sixth, which again, those two guys for being on the Yamahas and the Honda respectively, they did a great race to finish where they were. The whole weekend, Marquez was saying, we maybe have a 10th to 15th bike based on pace. I think Quattroaro was in the same boat, thinking about the same thing. For them to finish where they did, I thought was amazing. After Marquez, it was Marini and Lace Spargo. Man, how far did Lace go backwards there? I don't know what happened, but it was a backwards thing for him. I mean, our attention was obviously gripped by what was going on at the front, as it should have been. DJ Antonio after that, Zarco in 10th. Morbidelli Mir stayed on the bike and actually got points. Then Bastianini, Nakagami, and Raul Fernandez scoring a point as well so those are your top 15 an absolutely belter of a moto gp race i thought it was fantastic rich it certainly was jim there was some good overtakes in that race which is not something we say or have been saying a huge amount of this year in moto gp obviously it's been a criticism with the arrow and stuff but it's an impediment to overtaking obviously it wasn't like a moto 3 race because moto gp is not moto 3 but it was just one of those great races, just built and built and built and built, didn't it? And I had what you always want, which is a classic last sort of two to three laps. Yeah, OK, the Binder thing, I mean, I don't know what, he's not in the championship hunt, so it's not a big issue at the end of the day, although he'll be annoyed with himself and the team will be starting to get a little bit antsy with him, I would think, because this must be the at least the fourth, possibly even the fifth time he's been demoted a place for a last lap uh, track limit infraction. So he does sort of, you can, you can see some sort of... Um, sarcastic message coming onto the bike at some point about turning circles and stuff can't you because the KTM's that kind of a team so that was a shame for Binder and it's I, I mean that was a huge let off for Banyard even though that's only what three points is it difference between second and third that is a significant little bonus for Banyaya given how tight this is with Martin so mm. yeah that was a significant moment you, yeah, you said about LH, was... sorry go on 
Well, I was just going to say the, the difference is it's five points difference between first and second. Yeah. And then it's a four point difference between it. So Martin stood a chance of having uh five, nine points he would have gained. So they were 18 apart. It would have been nine had Benyaya not been able to jump up and yeah. grab those other four points. So, I mean, this could be crucial as we go on. Yeah. Um, continue now, I've, since I've had the point rant. <laughs> so I mentioned about uh, Alicia Spargo dropping back, which I'm assuming could have been tyres, for example, maybe just sort of ran out of tyre. I mean, Vignali's retired the bike, and I know, because I've read on Twitter, Stroke X, whatever, that, and I forget who put it up there, but somebody that's clued in enough to comment on this, Vignales was complaining vociferously with the team about the heat of the bike, as in when he was on the tank, he was saying he was boiling. And they obviously they're all used to riding these bikes, which run very hot, but the Prelia, I think, is right at the edge of acceptability at the moment. So whether Aleish, because he went through the whole race, whether he started to suffer, and I mean suffer in the real sense of the term, because they are actually getting burnt on that bike, Maybe that was part of it. I don't know, Jim, but I read it, so I'm just reporting it. If anybody else has read or heard something different, obviously let us know about that. But yeah, great race. I mean, that's fundamentally what we always want to be able to say, isn't it? It was a really exciting, nail-biting race, and you didn't know who was going to win pretty much until they came out of the last turn. Yeah, that is great. That is what you want. Uh, let's look at the points championship now after that. So it's a 13-point lead that Benyaya has over Martin, courtesy of the extra four points that he was gifted by Bender. Uh, Martin is probably going over there like, dude, I thought we had a deal. <laughs> but apparently <laughs> the things happen. It is between these two guys because Bezeki is now 79 behind the leader. Three races left, 75 points up for grabs. So mathematically, that's been done. Bender earlier in the weekend had been eliminated from contention. Bezeki now is eliminated from contention, being 79 behind the leader. So even if those guys crashed out, Bezeki won everything. He would basically be four points behind them, which yeah. is sad, but true. Then Bender, Aleish, Zarko, Vinales, Marini, Quattraro, and Miller. Uh, how about a little juicy rumorness to end off here? So with the Honda, I have heard, and this is on GP News. I watched this video at lunch today. So I just want to talk about it here quickly. Uh, it's been rumored that Honda hit, tried to buy Gigi Delinia from Ducati. Okay, I think that's a bit, mm, you know, I think, I mean, Honda's got a checkbook big enough that they could do it. I just don't see Gigi actually moving. Consequently, that means that Honda has now started to poach some high-end F1 talent to work on their motorcycles, supposedly. So that's interesting. It was tossed out there that Honda's first choice to replace Marquez was Oliveira, but that got sold by the fact that Honda only wants a one-year deal, or sorry, Honda is only offering a one-year deal, okay? Which is interesting because it looks like DG Antonio is going to take that one-year deal to be at Honda. While Marquez is riding essentially for free at Grissini, he'll be paid by his leather sponsor. He'll be paid by his helmet sponsor. He'll have all of his personal sponsorship money, but he's not getting a salary from Grissini. And the interesting fact then is people now, because Honda is only offering one year deals that they think that come next year with this aero work they're going to get from the F1 stars that have showed up to help their motorcycle, that they're somehow going to have this revelation and somehow get Marquez to get back on the bike in 25. I... I mean, okay, that's wild speculation that I think is, but I had to say something about it because I just think it's so crazy that people are drawing lines to get to here and there. I mean, it's like, okay, people, stop. Let's take the tinfoil hats off for a minute and come back to reality. 
I think the ship has sailed. You know, Marquez is not going to go back to Honda. It would have to be a marketed improvement. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's speculation to a point, Jim. I was shaking my head whilst you were saying that, but only over the timescales. I mean, I, I can't yeah. foresee many scenarios where they turn that bike around to becoming that, that enticing. You know, if Marquez has a, a year on the Grassini Ducati, I still firmly believe there's a strong chance he'll end up at KTM in 2025, maybe for a year or two. I mean, it depends if maybe. he can stay race fit, as in uninjured now for the next few years. He's, he's certainly got another three or four years in him. And you could certainly see him going back to Honda for a swan song year and kind of then re-establishing that long-term Honda ambassador kind of role that he was always kind of penciled in to have. It's, it's not completely ridiculous to imagine that he could go back to Honda. That might indeed be why they've let him go now, because they might think that they have a chance to get him back. And it's better to leave on good terms now, unlike what happened with Rossi, for example, <laughs> and get him back later on if they can turn it around. But it will certainly take them two, three, four seasons, I would imagine, even if they do get some F1 talent in. And that's not a guarantee of any kind of success on the aero front, because that's been tried and hasn't worked out in the past for many different reasons and many different teams. So it's just going to take work. But it's interesting that all the things you've just said about them trying to poach Delaney, and of course they were, I mean, they can afford to do it. It'd be, it's a bit like, you know, the whole kind of new eater Ferrari thing that's been on off for years and years and years, isn't it? I mean, the money is not the objection. It's the, it's the move away from home for Delaney, I suppose. But it does show a change of approach from Honda. And that is a very revealing thing and a kind of, it's not what they want to do because it's not the Japanese way historically, but it does show a change of mentality and that does bode well for the future, both in terms of turning the bike around in a reasonable amount or sensible amount of time and also their commitment to staying in the championship because, yeah. you know, obviously one of the other rumours that have been doing the round is that they might just think, sod it, we're off because it's just not worth it anymore. But Marquez is showing that with the right talent on the bike, they can extract results from it, but it's just too much risk for reward most of the time. Yeah. I mean, KTM did hire some F1 boffins to sit there and you know, figure some stuff out on the bike. Yeah. I don't know if Ducati has any F1 aerodynamics, but they do have people who definitely understand aerodynamics. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some crossover with Ferrari there. Oh, I was thinking more to the sort of the, uh, even going back as far as the 990 era, you might remember John Barnard was involved with Kenny Roberts's team, I think, on the, on the chassis side of thing or the frame. And there was a guy called Alan Jenkins, who was one of the preeminent F1 aerodynamicists, Ooh, I'm going back into the sort of the early part of the, the noughties, probably. He was around for a while, and I try to remember who. I think he might have worked with Ducati as well. So there have been Maybe. dalliances between F1 and, and obviously there was Mario Illen who came in with that. Um, what was it? Was it Suter? That that kind of bike that only ran for two or three rounds at the very end of the 800 era. Oh, I don't know. You're I, I'm stretching my memory. A couple of other people were associated with it, but the Mercedes engine builder, Mario Illion, his name was, he was associated with that. I'll have to look that one up. I can't remember the name of the team now, but unless it was mm. a suitor. So I think it was a suitor. Show. Anyway, so it's not unheard of, but no, they've tended to be a little bit sort of stillborn, some of those kind of associations. But obviously things are different with the level of aero now. And we know that Red Bull technologies are heavily involved with KTM, or that's what we read. Believe, yeah. And that bike is certainly a, a masterpiece of aero. Love it or loathe it. So it, it is slowly happening, for sure. Yep. One last thing for me, and then we can get out of here. I don't know if it's just the camera angles at this track, or if it's because we have these the exit out of turn 12, the exit out of turn one, then the exit out of three. But if you were to watch the Ducatis and their rear ride height adjustment and make it against uh, like the Honda, the Ducati drops so much faster than the Honda does. Yeah. The Honda takes a while to get there, but it gets to the Yamaha takes a while to get there. 
But it seems as though the Aprilia, the Ducati, they drop within a second and they're going where everything else is a slower progression that gets in there. Mm. That's one of the things I think that Honda, Yamaha need to work on because you can have more torque, you can have more power, which they could probably easily find. Yamaha, maybe not so much engine configuration. Let's set that aside here. But if you can get the bike center of gravity lower quicker, you're going to be able to accelerate harder. So I think that's one of the bigger areas that they need to work on as well. Aero is a part, yes, very much so. But also they have to work on that part of it. Again, we've said it before here, and I'll leave it here. Everything on that bike, from the whole shot device to the rear suspension sagging to the aero, all have to work together as one unit. And they cannot be pieced onto an existing system. Yeah. And the Duke is still blowing shadow with that. It's still the best bike. And you could see that really in the valiant uh, attempt that Binder made to win that race. And he nearly did. But, you know, Martin was able to just chuck it up the inside and make it stick, wasn't he? And that bike is just, the KHM is very, very close. Certainly with Binder on it, but it's just not quite there. But it, we're, we're talking tiny, tiny margins now. So all of that bodes well, hopefully for next year, if they can make a bit more of a step. But who's to say Ducati don't make a big step with something else? Because, you know, again, that's why Honda went with a big checkbook number to Gigi Delinia, because him and his team, you know, they always turn something up, don't they? And mm. I suspect they won't go too radical next year with the 24 bike. So maybe Marquez won't have quite as much of a, not advantage, that's not the word I mean, but I think Ducati have learned from the last couple of seasons where they went, they got themselves a bit befuddled in the first few rounds, annoyed their riders who were kind of doing test duty effectively. When in a championship this tight, you can't afford to take your eye off the ball for one round, one session even, let alone two or three rounds. That was that last year, I think, wasn't it, where Banyai was really quite critical of the 23 bike as it was then. Uh, no, the 20, 22 bike, sorry, which took a while to get going. But once it did, obviously, yeah, I mean, he, he was super quick on it. So, yeah, the, the only other thing, I do need to mention one other thing before we go, Jim, but what do you make of Miguel Oliveira in the second half of the season? Hmm. Good point. I don't know why. Something's missing. I, I do not know what it is. I I would have thought that they would have been much further ahead than where they are. Although that is a year old Aprilia. Yeah. And maybe it's just that everything else has moved just that much farther forward. Maybe. I, I don't know. I can't answer it because he looked good at the beginning of the year. It seemed like that was working well. And it sort of just has fallen off. And I don't think it's Oliveira's ability to ride at all. I I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a it's a very big mystery about what happened, and I don't have a good answer. I've got three thoughts, and I'll probably forget one of these as I go through. I mean, I think, as you say, it's a year-old bike, and I doubt there's any development going into that bike, and I suspect because of the nature of the Aprilia factory, there isn't much trickle-down from the works team going on at this point either. So it might be that they're just falling further and further back. But what's slightly curious is that Oliveira's had a really poor few rounds, and I rate him massively, as you know. Whereas Raul Fernandez has actually been outshining him quite significantly in the last three or four rounds that I can think of. You know, Fernandez is starting to get his head a long last because it's been a long time in the coming and a bit too long for, for most people, I would suspect. But he is actually putting Oliveira in the shade. So my only kind of thought is perhaps that Oliveira's been so beaten up this year, and it's such an intense championship in terms of number of rounds you know the number of back-to-backs and triple headers you know perhaps physically he just needs the winter break to recover now and he perhaps his shoulders are down a little bit his head's down a bit body's hurting the bike's not being developed anymore maybe he just wants to wait until next year and get on the current Aprilia although the same thing might happen next year of course 
Yeah, just a bit of a curious one, really, because Oliveira is so good. It's very sort of noticeable the degree to which he's having a struggle at the minute. Yeah, I again, I have no thoughts. It's, it's a great thought. Maybe he is just beat up. Maybe he just is that way. It's just I'm done. Let's pack it in, get through these races and get out of here and go on to next year. I mean, he was obviously tempted to go to Honda. So you, maybe you got to think that maybe it's a funding issue. Maybe RNF doesn't have the money. Mm. I mean, it's possible. I don't know. If you've been on a factory team and now you're on a satellite team, what would you want to do? Go back to a factory team, any factory team. So I, I don't know. I mean, it could be just a, some disillusionment of some kind. Certainly for the paycheck, although the Joanne Mir lesson is a salutary one to look over the fence at. Because although, again, Mir's perhaps not had quite such a bad time of it in the last few rounds. Again, it was not much of a showing this week. And I don't think he crashed in either of the races. And that is obviously no. progress of a sort. But where was he? Quite a fair way yeah. down. Just outside the points, I think. Yeah. But uh, as far as I know, RNF said, no, 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 Oliveira's got a contract next year. We're not letting him out of it. I think that's probably what happened. So perhaps he's a bit demoralised just to add that into the mix as well. <laughs> Could be. All right, everyone. I think that's everything we could talk about possibly for Thailand and Malaysia. Mitch, you've got one more thing? Well, not to do MotoGP, Jim, if you'll just oh, um, no, uh, allow me. I, I've got to talk very, very briefly about the World Superbike round. Final round at Jerez. Race one, pretty good race. Raz Gathioglu took it to Bautista, but Bautista kind of did what he's done most of this year and kind of once he got to half tanks and lower fuel load, kind of rode off, won the championship. So you're thinking, you know, Sunday possibly won't be that great. If you can, go to YouTube and watch the first two laps of the sprint race because it got red flagged after two laps. But the first two laps were crazy. So I recommend people go and check that bit out. And then race two, the final sort of feature race of the season, was like the two laps of the sprint for the whole race. The only thing that was a disappointment in it was that Johnny Ray, last race for Karasaki, bolted out front, was doing a bit of a Mark Marquez, you know, completely not overriding the bike, but kind of riding it so hard that you kind of knew that there was a risk that he was going to crash, which he did. Well, he did remount and finish, but it, it was just a barnstorm of gym. Start to finish, Razgatioglu, Bautista, Rinaldi, Domi Agata was in there. Just brilliant. If you can spare half an hour to go and find that on, Euros, uh, on Eurosport or on YouTube or wherever, it is well worth your time because um, it was great. The only sting in the tail was last corner, Razgatioglu, who won the race on the track, stuck his rear tire into the green so he lost <laughs> he lost the his last race for yamaha because obviously he's going across to bmw next year who incidentally bmw well i don't think they are at the test at hereth down tomorrow but yamaha wouldn't release him from his contract which has gone down not terribly well as you might well imagine so there's a relationship that's ended on a sour note which is never Never wise, really, if you hope to tempt the person back one day. Yeah, so Bautista did the triple, but he was very lucky to do that because, I mean, Raz Gatioglu, he only just dropped his rear tire just into the green on the final turn. You know, the famous, you know, Rossi, Gibernau, Marquez, Lorenzo. It, something always happens in that last turn. But, yeah, great World Superbike final round in Hareth. So worth going and checking out if you can find it. And the last thing, Jim, just uh, I'm now making my arrangements for Qatar, which is only, what, uh, just over two weeks before I head off there. So I'm starting to get in touch with the various press offices, seeing how I can line up. I've got Sam Lowe's confirmed. Obviously, I've got LCR confirmed in terms of Lico Cecinello. Cecinello. Let me make sure I get that right, don't I? And I should get some time with Alex Rins, and assuming he's there, and Takanakagami as well. I'm not allowed to go anywhere else too much with MotoGP. That's kind of my instruction from Dorna this time. But I've got free reign on Moto2 and Moto3. So I'm kind of uh, going out to all of the press or, or many of the press officers. So I'm hoping to get Aldegar, Lopez, Jake Dixon, 
Joe Roberts, Rory Skinner from a British point of view, and then quite a bunch of the Moto3 team. So if they're just really a shout out to the listeners, if there's a particular rider or a particular question for one of the riders, keep it clean, keep it reasonable. But if anybody's got any burning questions that they would really like to ask and I can arrange it and I can fashion it, then let us know and I'll do my best. So that was it. Okay. Well, on that great news, I think we'll end there. Uh, I'll try to end there. So again, if you have anything for Rich's time in Qatar, hit him up. Uh, it's at Richard Jowett on X Instagram threads. I'm at Moto RGV and Instagram threads and X as well. If you want to, you can send your comments or questions for Rich Rich's writers uh, for Qatar to motopod at motopodcast.com. And since that is everything that I can think of to make sure that you get what you want in for Richard's trip, I'm going to sell you Ride Safe. I'll just say, Jim, if people do have questions for the riders, probably best to send them through the Motopod email that you just gave rather than out on the live channels. Just keep it private. And then, you know, I can then select the bits and the ones that I think, you know, I can actually work with, if you know what I mean, in terms of who I get to see. Because don't forget, I had this in World Superbike in Donington. There will be press officers sat in the room with us. So you'll get shut down if you ask too tasty a question. So I have to be done in a sort of... Um, yeah, in a constructive and interesting way. But yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Anyway, so if people got some good ones, yeah, put them on the Moto Podcast. Uh, no, what's the email address? Jim? I can never get it right. Motopod at motopodcast.com for any questions for Rich to ask the riders at Qatar. Okay, ride safe, everyone. See you next time.